The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, if you will. Turn in your scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And our text is verses 15 to 20. That's what I'm reading, actually. The text will be shorter than that. It'll be 15 to 17. But our reading is Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Let us hear God's word. <clears throat> if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, how we need you, how we need you, eternal spirit, to speak now unto us, to open my mouth, to give me words which are faithful unto you, and to give us all ears to hear, that we might hear what your Spirit has to say to us. Lord, may we receive your word this day uh, as a child, one who humbles himself, Uh, and so may we act as kingdom citizens. Speak to us, Lord God. Be for us what we cannot be for ourselves, and be glorified in our midst, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, you can see from your bulletin that the text before us uh, that has been read is not the full text of the sermon this morning. In fact, the original iteration of the bulletin uh, had the text from verse 15 right the way through to the end of the chapter, and that was going to be a three-point sermon. As I started work on the sermon, I realized it's far too big a text of Scripture, uh, so I reduced it down to verses 15 to 20 and turned it into a two-point sermon. And then as I began uh, studying further and further, I realized there was so much to say on this text that I'm reducing it even further to verses 15 and 17, and yes, it's now a one-point sermon. I've never done that before, but there we go. Yes, this text is complex. It's full, and it's nuanced. And dealing with a large text like this requires us to take a little bit of time You'll notice, I think, perhaps, that our preaching has been in larger sections of the Gospel of Matthew and Exodus, but there are times we need to just slow down a little as the text demands. You'll remember last week, if you were here, Pastor Rockham was teaching us and reflecting upon that our Lord has been teaching what kind of Messiah he would be. And that kind of Messiah was a submissive and a suffering Messiah the fact that the disciples had not yet been able to get their minds around. 
And then last week, Pastor Rockin teased out what our Lord was teaching about the people of the kingdom. If Christ is a submissive and humble and suffering savior, what ought to be the character of conduct of those in his kingdom? And he told us last week that we are called to be like our savior. Uh, We're called to be childlike. We're not called to make ourselves preeminent in the kingdom. We're called to have that childlike, humble demeanor. Now, our text this morning deals with conflict resolution. That's simply what it's about. Resolving problems between brothers and sisters in the church. The context is everything for our passage today. If Christians have that childlike, humble demeanor, when it comes to conflict resolution, we won't assert ourselves, we won't seek to be preeminent, we'll actually seek to resolve the matter, the sin, the grievance or offense before us. And we'll seek to resolve it in a Christ-like fashion. If we have the mind of Christ, of humility and submission, that will do half the work for us when we come to resolve the differences that we encounter in the church. That's what we deal with today. We're seeking the peace and purity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about kingdom conduct. We're talking about a Christ-like mind. And the text before us, really verses 15 to 20, divides itself into the private and the public. Verses 15 and 16 deal with private ways to resolve conflict. Verse 17, which we'll just touch on today before we come back to it next week. Verse 17 following deals with the escalation of that conflict into a more public sphere where the church becomes involved in conflict resolution. So our single point today is this really, the personal context of peace and purity in the church. How we resolve our differences with each other in a Christ-like and a godly fashion. And so we're preeminently dealing with verses 15 and 16, touching briefly on verse 17 also. This is one of the texts that we don't like to hear, and we don't like to read, and frankly, we don't like to apply. Why? Because it's hard. It's just simply hard. And that's one of the reasons why I want to take a little bit more time over the text Doing Matthew 18, as we call it, is a messy task. It's unpleasant. It involves us saying hard things and sometimes hearing hard things. And often we would have to say when we've done the process of Matthew 18, we don't end up with the result that we like. We can say Matthew 18 is a hard text to understand and a hard text to practice in our lives. But I want to say first and foremost, there is a great motivation for us in this church, for you who are going to Zion and whatever church you might find yourself in, there is a great motivation to the work of reconciliation of brothers and sisters. The first motivation is obvious. This is what God has done for us in Christ. 
It's not part of our immediate text, but it's part of the wider context. God has reconciled himself to us. He's the alienated party by our sin, and he has drawn us under himself. How? By the work and the person of the submissive, suffering Savior. Very simple. God has done this for us. Ought we not then to do it for each other? But there's another great enabling in the immediate context of our text today. As Pastor Ocken spoke of last week, what kind of Savior is the Messiah and what kind of people are kingdom people to be? The submissive Savior, the suffering Savior, the humble Savior taught his disciples also to be likewise, to be like him, to be humble. Uh, We can see that in the first five verses. The greatest in the kingdom must become as a child, dependent and humble. Uh, We see then in verse 7 following, such people are not the kind of people who set temptation before each other and cause others to stumble. In other words, they think better of their brethren than to cause them to stumble by standing on their own desires. And finally then in verse following, verse 10 following rather, he says, don't despise any of these little ones. Don't think little of the people in your church. Don't think poorly of your brother and sister in Christ. In other words, count everyone else in this room and in your Christian relations as better than yourself. And then when you approach the issue of conduct and conflict resolution, you will come into that circumstance, that situation, with the best of attitudes. A Christ-like attitude which wants to see the best for your brother or sister, even if, as verse 15 says, your brother has sinned against you. Pridefully exalting yourself in your everyday life, will lead you to pridefully exalting yourself when it comes to times of conflict resolution. Having the demeanor of Christ will actually do half the work of resolving troubles with your brethren. That's the mindset, that's the motivation of this matter. Count others better than yourself when you are giving reproof or when you are receiving reproof. Count others better than yourselves. If that's the mindset, what is the process? Well, our Lord tells us what the process is in three steps in verses 15 and 16 and 17 one step for each verse verse 15 if your brother sins against you go and tell him his sin privately between you and him alone verse 15 verse 16 if that doesn't work take two or three witnesses third step verse 17 if that doesn't work tell it to the church tell it to the church officers and let them make a decision that's the three-step process before us this morning but before we get there think generally about the verses before us general considerations which will help our mind focus more narrowly on the matters before us five five matters first we are dealing with offenses between 
brothers and sisters. This is how you deal with matters in the church, number one. Secondly, we're dealing with private grievances, not public grievances. If your brother sins against you, it's singular. This is against you. You are to go to them. It's a private, not a public grievance. uh, Thirdly, and again, verse 15, the goal of this process is always to gain your brother, to gain your sister. The goal is reconciliation. Another general consideration, fourthly, if this process is unsuccessful, while it starts out privately, it gradually escalates to an ever-widening circle of people. Take witnesses, first of all. If that doesn't work, it goes to the church. In other words, the matter becomes greater than it originally did and attended to by more people. And you can see also that by the end of the process, fifthly, The brother who is unrepentant, we see this verse 17 and 18 through 20, the brother who is unrepentant is ultimately excommunicated from the church. They are to be, Christ says, to you as a tax collector and a Gentile. We'll come back to that in a moment. So we see five broad principles which sharpen our focus, and I hope to bring them back in when we deal with how to apply this text. Consider the three-step process before us. The first step is verse 15. If one is offended by one's brother or sister, they have sinned against you. Our Lord tells us clearly, go and tell them privately. Resolve the sin, if you can, between you and your brother, and you will have gained a brother or sister. Look at the text. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's step one. Uh, Note first, as we think of step one, that we are dealing with a process between brethren, between brother and sister in the church if your brother sins against you it's a singular in the greek it's not you plural it's you as an individual somebody has offended you your brother or your sister should come to you that is to say we have in the church of christ a mechanism by which we may resolve personal injury and insult And that's to say that personal injury and insult happen in the church. Christ now is giving us a mechanism by which we can deal with it. In other words, we are to deal with our brother and sister as family, family members. Uh, Not a physical family, but the family of God. The family of God which will outlast our physical families. We must be able to think of even those who have offended us or stood against us. Unless there's overwhelming evidence to the contrary, we must be able to think of our brethren as blood bought by the Lamb. Children of God, my brother, my sister in Christ. That's what kingdom conduct looks like. That's what it looks like for a child of God to think through the process of personal injury. That's what kingdom-minded people do. That's how they think. They think of their brother and their sister. Now, to be sure, that's not what we always do. 
but that's most certainly what we should do. If your brother sins against you, friends, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. The second point our Lord makes in in this first step is how we deal with our brother. And we have to say this is an area which is frequently broken in this process. We are to deal with our brother or sister privately. Privately. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. Privately. A private injury should be dealt with privately. Don't go about telling the world and his wife that somebody has injured you. That's contrary to the process that Christ has stipulated. It's contrary to the goal that Christ has set forth of winning a brother. When we tell everyone else the offense, that's just called gossip. And scripture has much to say about it. Proverbs 17.9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. And we know, as those who have heard or received gossip, just how alluring it is. So-and-so has done this to me. Our ears prick up, don't they? Scripture again tells us that's the case. Proverbs 18, verse 8. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And again, Proverbs uh, Proverbs 20, verse 19, the same can be said again. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. The danger of gossip our Lord treats very seriously. He says, go and resolve the issue between you and your brother alone. And we know also that when we are Giving and receiving information, we're called to receive it carefully. We're called not just to hear something and believe it as if it were the gospel truth. The one who states his case first, says Proverbs, seems right until the other comes and cross-examines. That means don't believe everything you hear. But you shouldn't, shouldn't be hearing it anyway if it's a matter of private offense. Go deal with the brother alone. Friends, if you're party to this kind of discussion where tales are being born, gently, maturely, and with love, close that conversation down. Don't be party to separating friends. Yes, it's to be private. The third part of step one is the goal. We've mentioned it already. Verse 15, at the end of it, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, it's not just what we say, it's how we say it. And and I've no doubt we all frequently fail on both these matters. What we say can be right or wrong. The way we say it can be right or wrong. Remember, the messenger can make or break the message. The messenger can make or break the message. If our goal is to gain the brother in the way that we speak to them, then we'll speak to them as Paul tells, uh, tells us in Galatians that we restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. He also speaks of humility. Uh, when we correct someone, we are to take heed to ourselves lest we fall also. 
gentleness and humility in the moment of, of bringing an accusation of sin will go a long way, a long way to opening the ears of the one who is listening. That's right. Jesus says privately with gentleness and treating your brother or sister as such a one is the way to go about step one. Now, let's pause for a moment before we move to step two and step three. We need to take care with Matthew 18. We need to take great care, in fact, because Matthew 18 is not designed to deal with every situation of conflict that you will ever come across. There are various relations and various circumstances which quite simply do not fit this pattern of behavior that Christ our Lord speaks of. And I can think of at least four areas where we might think, well, we need another process to deal with our troubles. Four areas where Matthew 18 ought either to be wisely used or not to be used at all. First, the nature of the offense. The nature of the offense. If it's a private offense, Matthew 18 works well. If it's a public offense, it doesn't work quite so well. It's not to say it can't be used in public offenses, but it doesn't work quite so well. For example, if I write a book that's full of heresy, I've written that book for all the world to see. It's not just a private matter between you and me. Now, you might come to me with a judgment of charity and deal with me through Matthew 18, but, but that's there for everyone to see. It's an open day, in a sense, on what I've written. Matthew 18 is not really designed for public offenses before the whole world. Secondly, neither should we rigidly apply Matthew 18 in certain circumstances of life. Think about this. If a child comes to elders and says, my parents are abusing me, or we can think of domestic violence, the church or the Christian would be absolute fools to demand that you sit that person down with their alleged or the accused offender, abuser, and say, go and do Matthew 18 with that person on your own. We wouldn't dream of inserting the vulnerable person back into the very circumstance in which they find their vulnerability. That would be folly. It would be cruel. It's not to say that there isn't a time of reckoning between those parties. But we don't sit down and say, well, you haven't done Matthew 18 with your husband or your parents. We're not going to listen to you. That's just folly. No, the church and the Christian has special circumstances to guard those who find themselves in great positions of vulnerability or danger. And we must act with peculiar diligence and peculiar process in those kinds of situations. In other words, Matthew 18 requires wisdom to know when to apply it. Thirdly, some would also argue that Matthew 18 is not to be applied when we're dealing with inferiors bringing a charge against superiors. That is to say, anybody in authority is regarded as a superior. Anybody under authority is to be regarded as an inferior. And I'm using the language of our catechism there. 
That's to say, a child is not bound to go to their parents, or a congregant is not bound to go to their elder or pastor in a matter of personal injury because of the imbalance of authority and power. That's the alleged position. Don't do Matthew 18 if you're a congregant and I've offended you personally. Don't come and see me. That's what's being said. I want to be very cautious about this one. Because a child to a parent, congregant to an elder or pastor, we're still dealing with brethren, are we not? And our Lord says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. I think we need to be very cautious about saying it doesn't apply in those circumstances. But I would also say this, and this is connected to the previous point. We would all acknowledge that children to parents, even in a sense congregant to an elder or pastor, there is an inequality of authority, rightly so, which could hinder the process of reconciliation. I say could. Just because there's an inequality of authority does not necessitate a broken system. I want to be very clear on that. That's the way the world says, speaks about authority. It doesn't necessitate that we should set Matthew 18 aside. But there might be a time when we say, well, maybe verse 15 is not our starting point. Maybe we're going to jump straight into verse 16. I'll take counselors with me when I'm speaking to someone who is in authority over me. Just a word of wisdom there. And the final The final caveat, if you will, with Matthew 18 is to do with the goal of Matthew 18. We've said the goal is to gain a brother, but it is in fact a goal over which you have little control. That's the great goal, but it's a goal over which you have little control. It is not your job to change the heart of your brother or sister. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Not only is it not your job, you can't even do it. So we're not attempting to try to win an argument in this situation. We're trying to be upright. We're trying to be upright. We must do what is right and leave the rest up to God. When it comes to Matthew 18, we must do what is right and leave the rest up to God. In other words, friends, this step one of Matthew 18, we're called to do it. But we're called to be wise and discerning in the way and in the circumstances in which we do it. Because there are limitations to it. Limitations by Christ's own design. Not by his ignorance, by his design. And if our Lord says, step one does not work, then you're to move to step two, which is verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So we've been unsuccessful in step one. You've gone to your brother. You've told them, brother or sister, I think you've sinned against me. The brother or sister doesn't hear you. They disagree. What do you do? You take witnesses. There's a slight escalation of the number of people and the publicity of the matter at hand. There is a widening circle of people involved. We've moved from a private one-to-one to to a kind of semi-public, a small group of witnesses. 
Why is there one or two witnesses? Scripture tells us, Deuteronomy 19.15, that on the evidence of two or three witnesses, every charge or fact is established. That's assuming they're upright witnesses, of course. On, on the, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything is established. So you may take one other person with you. You are one witness. Your witness is another person by the mouth of two people. Everything is established. Or you may take more by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Everything is established. What is the purpose of these witnesses? Well, of course, they're witnesses to the process. They're witnesses to what's been said, what's not been said, the way in which it's been said. But also, verse 17 tells us, if he refuses to listen to them, if the, 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 the accused, the sinner in this case, not only refuses to listen to the offended, but also to the witnesses, then there's a further escalation. Yes, the witnesses come in not just merely as witnesses, but as counselors. Counselors in a situation which is broken. Think on that for a minute. You're called to come in to mediate, to bring counsel and wisdom, to bring direction in righteousness to both the offended and the offender. There may be something to say to both parties in any given situation. To bring wisdom and experience to bear, convincing both parties of the way forward. Friends, I want to say to us, if if you're in that situation ever, either as a witness or as an offended or an offender, you ought to feel the weight of that situation. You ought to feel the weight of that situation that your brethren have been called in to mediate between you and another brother and sister and they're to give you counsel. They're to teach you in the ways of righteousness. They're to give you discernment about the matter that is at hand. That's a huge issue. Scripture tells us there is safety in a multitude of counselors. Praise the Lord that he's put 200 counselors around each one of us in this church. That he's put us in each other's lives that we might bear testimony. We might receive counsel. We might receive gentle correction. There is a weight to when your brethren come to you and say, we think there might be an issue here. Or you're not representing yourself or the Lord well. There is the duty of self-examination that we honestly before the Lord weigh our conduct and our words especially when more than one brother or sister comes to us. But if that doesn't work, we're going to transgress briefly into verse 17 for a moment. If that doesn't work, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. I'm going to exegete that more fully next week. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We're moving now out of the realm of private discipline, informal discipline, between brother and sister, into the realms of a more formal discipline. In fact, it's made clear in the rest of the text that we're talking here about an unrepentant sinner who has committed some sin. They've gone through all the process of step one, step two, and now they're at step three. They still won't hear. They still won't repent. They're put out of the church. They're put out 
of the church. The church, of course, here, tell it to the church, is the authority of the church. We have brothers and sisters who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are faithful in so that believe church discipline resides within the body, the membership itself. They're called congregationalists. Many Baptist church work like this, but not all of them. It's not what it's speaking about. It's speaking about the authority of Christ vested in the church through elders, that elders are to rule, elders are to make these kinds of adjudications. Remember, our Lord is dealing here with the apostles. He's not speaking broadly to everyone. It's his apostles. Now, if elders make a judgment, then comes the censure. The censure here is clearly that of excommunication, verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector friends to be excommunicated is perilous it's to be handed over to satan for the destruction of the flesh it is to be put outside the visible church jesus is using terms which were loaded terms in his day the jews here gentile and tax collector and they'd have said yes that gives us the right to hate people who are excommunicated because they hated Jew- gentiles and tax collectors that's not how jesus thought of gentiles and tax collectors that's not at all how he thought of them in fact he went to them and preached good news to them he showed great love to gentiles and tax collectors while acknowledging they were not part of the covenant people in this case the person has been put outside of the covenant people and really what we see in every step of this practice from step one to step two through to step three is implicit is a call to repentance a call to repentance which one of us does not need daily to repent You can be a member in good standing of this church all the days of your life and still daily you will have the need to repent of your sins, of my sins. You see, this is a call to each one of us from the first time step one starts with a brother coming to us. We're being called, have I sinned? Do I need to repent of my sins? You see, the censure at the end of this is a terrible censure, but you can recover from it. The censure that God will bring at the end of time, it's unrecoverable. To be excommunicated from heaven is far worse than being excommunicated from the church. Excommunication now in this life, there's a chance to repent, a call, turn in faith to Christ. It's too late on judgment day, you see, friends. We can be a fugitive from justice now, as it were, but you can't do that with God on the judgment day. The good news, though, is that we have a Savior who submitted himself, was humble, so that he died on the cross to forgive all the sins of all his people, and not one should be left unforgiven. And think on that, dear friends, what blessedness comes from being forgiven. Think of your lives just this day, friends. What blessedness there is to be a child of almighty God, the holy and righteous one. And he says, welcome into my family. All your sins are removed by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There's not one blemish or stain or spot or crime or sin that resides on your record. Wiped clean. And more than that, the child of God who returns to God in repentance is granted a righteousness such as fulfills the requirement of the law of God. And we're welcomed into the royal family of God. Friends, we have no interest in in being wrong. We have no interest, none whatsoever, in standing our ground when we've sinned. Nothing is to be gained from it. We injure ourselves when we stand our ground stubbornly when we've sinned. We injure the person we have stood against and injured in our sin. And we injure the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ when we stubbornly refuse to repent and be reconciled. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting the other person. You're hurting the church of Christ. Friend, if you're at odds with anyone in this church, put it right. If there are people you won't and can't speak to in this church, put it right now. I'm very serious about that. Put it right. There's a far better way. There's a far better way. And one of those ways is not to have to do Matthew 18 at all. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. For sure, there are times where we need to go to our brother or sister But where you can, dear friends, as your sins have been covered by God Almighty, cover their sins also. Blot it out from your memory. And when you can't, pursue the peace and purity of this church and of Zion Church through the means God has given you. He's just told you of it today. And when we come to this process, as hard and as unpleasant as as it is, I just say one thing to you. Do what's right and leave the rest to God. Let's pray. Father, have mercy upon us, your children. How great is our need to live as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, to live like him, to think like him, to speak like him. We bless you, Lord God, that you have blotted out our sins, that all of us here present from first to last and in every aspect of our lives, we, we are drowning in sin, and were it not for your grace and for your mercy, we would be dead in sin. Help us, therefore, love you. Help us to love each other. Help us to love your church, and may we act accordingly. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.